Uh, this morning, I am very confident that the parents who are in this room said two words to their children. I'm very confident of it. And there are two words that you said this morning that you have said many, many times before today. And there's two words that you're going to use many, many more times after today. And some of you are looking at me like, what does he know? (laughs) And how does he know it? Those two words that you use, get up. Some of you used it in a very cheerful, positive way. Get up. Some of you was very stern. Get up, right? Okay. Some of you was just a simple command. Get up, right? Okay. Two words that you use. And it was met with mumbles. It was met with groans, with whispers, with promises of future obedience. Just two words. Get up. Those two words are two words that Simon Peter used on two different occasions towards two different people. And in both situations, those words changed that person's lives and it changed your life forever. And it's all in Acts chapter 9. Let me show you. Grab your Bible. Turn with me to Acts Chapter 9, we're going through the book of Acts together as a faith family. We're seeing how the Holy Spirit was at work in the lives of the early church. We see where Jesus in chapter 1, before he ascended into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God the Father, he gave his apostles the phrase, the, the, the great commission in Acts 1.8, where he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. This Acts 1-8 commitment, this, this command, rather, that Jesus gave to his apostles, we see it being fulfilled in the book of Acts. And we see in chapters 1 through 7, the church is in in Jerusalem. We see the church, and there's a a movement of the gospel. Then we see in chapters 8 through 12, a movement to Judea and Samaria. And then in chapter 13, we're going to be reintroduced to Saul, who will be called the Apostle Paul. And he will begin a missionary movement that will go to the ends of the earth. That indeed the gospel that began in Jerusalem in chapter 1 is going to be in Rome in Acts chapter 28. That the gospel is spreading outward. That the movement of Jesus is getting far and wide through the local church. The church is the vehicle that God has ordained to get the gospel to the nations. Now we've seen in Acts chapter 9 where Jesus confronted, humbled, and saved one of the church's biggest persecutors, Saul. On the Damascus road, we saw this proud man be humbled to his knees. His heart and his life is changed by Jesus. He is transformed into this powerful preacher of the gospel. Indeed, this terrorist became an evangelist. Last week, we saw where Saul was preaching in Damascus, and the Jews there tried to kill him. He was so persuasive in his preaching that it enraged those who were the gospel's enemies. So in order to save his life, the church, they lowered him in a basket out of a city wall so he could escape to safety in the cover of night. 
He makes his way to Jerusalem, and when he gets there, the church stiff arms him because they're hesitant to actually believe that he is now in Christ. But one man named Barnabas puts his arm around him. He introduces Saul to the apostles. Saul begins his ministry of preaching, and he's making an impact in Jerusalem for the sake of the gospel. But then he begins to enrage the Hellenistic Jews there in Jerusalem, and they try to kill him. And so the church transports him to safety. They get him out of Jerusalem, and he ends up in Tarsus, where he will stay until we see here in a few chapters where he'll be re-met up with, with future disciples, and the gospel will go forth. In the meantime, as the city of Jerusalem and the regions of Judea and Samaria, as they're being turned upside down by people giving their lives to Jesus, they enter into a time of peace. They enter into a time, a season of grace. And this is where we pick up in Acts chapter 9, beginning with verse 31. And the scripture says this. So the church throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and was strengthened. Living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers. As Peter was traveling from place to place, he also came down to the saints who lived in Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas who was paralyzed and had been bedridden for eight years. Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and make your bed. And immediately he got up. So all who lived in Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. In Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha, which is translated Dorcas. She was always doing good works and acts of charity. About that time, she became sick and died. After washing her, they placed her in a room upstairs. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples heard that Peter was there and sent two men to him who urged him, don't delay in coming with us. Peter got up and went with them. When he arrived, they led him to the room upstairs. And all the widows approached him, weeping and showing him the robes and clothes that Dorcas had made while she was with them. Peter sent all of all out of the room. He knelt down, prayed, and turning toward the body, said, Tabitha, get up. She opened her eyes, saw Peter, and sat up. He gave her his hand and helped her stand up. He called the saints and widows and presented her alive. This became known throughout Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. Peter stayed for some time in Joppa with Simon, a leather tanner. The season that God has given to the church throughout Jerusalem and, and Galilee and Samaria is one of great peace and joy. They're in a season of health and growth for the church. The church has multiplied by thousands of people multiple times over. And indeed, the gospel is spreading to surrounding areas, many of whom who have fled after the persecution and martyrdom of Stephen. The tsunami of terror under Saul has now stopped. And like the days of Solomon, who had peace on every side from his enemies, the church has now entered into a season of peace. It was a time of joy and thanksgiving where the people were, verse 31, living in the fear of the Lord. They were encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It was a season of harvest as many people are coming into the kingdom and trusting in Christ. It was a sweet season of growth and grace. But this time of peace was not permanent. For as we're going to see when we get to chapter 12, that persecution will come back onto the scene as we see King Herod who will slaughter and kill James. See, Jesus loves his church. 
He cares for his church. He protects his church. He provides for his church. His loving gaze is always upon his bride. And yet there are times in which Jesus permits seasons of suffering, difficulty, and hardship for his church. Why does he do that? He'll allow it and ordain it even for the sake of pruning out pretenders, strengthening the remnants, to remind God's people that we're not home yet. God will often ordain difficulty and hardship so that we might loosen our grip on the things of this world. It's a reminder, y'all, we're sojourners. We're not home yet. We are aliens in a foreign land. We are headed towards a kingdom that is about to come. And though no one wants a season of hardship, God will ordain it for our good and for his glory. But for the sake of Acts chapter 9, that's not what's happening. The church is in a season of grace and peace and goodness. Peter and other church leaders are preaching the word and pointing people to Jesus throughout Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. And what we see in Acts 9 is Simon Peter is mirroring the life and ministry of Jesus. Simon Peter is traveling, he's preaching, and he's healing just like Jesus did. This morning, I want you to notice in the text the power of Jesus to change people's lives and what it means for us today. The first thing I want you to see is this. I want you to see Jesus' power over disease. Jesus' power over disease. Verse 32 is Luke's reintroduction to Peter. The last time we saw Peter was back in chapter 5. He was being flogged by the Sanhedrin. Now he's traveling from town to town preaching, and he's following the great commission command that Jesus gave to his apostles. And he's preaching and he's healing. Peter is doing what he saw Jesus do. Indeed, the disciple has become like his master. That Jesus, the greatest leader who ever lived, has taught and modeled how to do ministry. And the book of Acts is the acts of the Holy Spirit through the acts of the apostles who are mimicking and imitating the acts of Jesus. We'll say it like this. In John 14, Jesus told his disciples, Truly I tell you, the one who believes in me will also do the works that I do. And he will do even greater works than these. Now, when Jesus said that, he was not minimizing his own works, but rather he was maximizing the extent to which his apostles would be able to carry out farther his work in greater volume and in locations and in the lives of more people. Whereas Jesus was one man in one location performing these incredible works, he's now multiplying it by 12 through these apostles. And for eight years, Aeneas has been paralyzed. For eight years, he's been laying in bed. For eight years, he's been unable to walk around his neighborhood, unable to play with his kids, unable to walk the beaches of the Mediterranean Sea, unable to feel his wife's cold feet under a blanket on a cold night. Y'all, when we read scripture, let's make sure we don't keep the people flat. These are real people, real lives, real families. This is a man who has suffered for eight years. And as Peter comes to his town of Lydda, Peter sees Aeneas and says, Jesus Christ heals you. 
It's amazing here. Peter has seen Jesus heal people just by speaking the word. And now he's doing the exact same thing under the power of the Holy Spirit. He is speaking healing over this man's life. He's also making sure that it's clear that it's Jesus who is the one who's doing the healing. Peter's not taking any credit here. He's giving glory to the only one who has the power and the authority to heal people, and it's Jesus. In this moment in Acts 9, y'all, it mirrors the moment in Luke 5 where Jesus heals the paralytic who is lowered down through a roof on a mat. And Jesus speaks to this man and says, get up, take your mat and go home. And immediately the man does it. Well, here Peter looks at Aeneas and says, get up. And immediately the blood rushed through the veins in Aeneas' legs. Immediately, he has muscle memory. Immediately, his joints and cartilage are strengthened. Immediately, he jumps to his feet. Aeneas has been healed by Simon Peter. God has taken a blue-collar fisherman from nowhere, Galilee, and now he's using him to heal the cripple. Isn't it amazing how God can use anybody who submits and yields to the power of the Spirit? You don't have to be smart. You don't have to be wealthy. You don't have to be attractive. You don't have to have this big, long education with letters after your name for God to use your life. You say yes to Jesus. You submit to the Holy Spirit and you watch him move in and through your life. You see, the kingdom of God here is breaking through. The lives of people are being changed by Jesus. This physical healing in Acts 9 is pointing forward to a future day. A day in the kingdom of God in which there is no more sickness, no more disease, no more paralysis, no more epilepsy, no more cancer, no more sinus infections, no more allergies. No need for a children's hospital hospital in the new kingdom, y'all. Here we see a healing that's taking place, and it's pointing forward to an even greater reality that's coming in the new kingdom. When Jesus announced that the kingdom of heaven has come near, he's showing not only in the temporary, but he's showing in the long term what the new kingdom is going to be like. That in the new kingdom, the compassionate king is going to reverse the curse of Genesis 3. That in the new kingdom, this king is going to create a new land and a new world, a new city of a new people who have new bodies, who will rejoice and bask in the king who has made all of this for his glory. But first, people have to hear about Jesus. People have to hear the gospel. You see, the miracle of Aeneas draws a crowd, and Peter, verse 35, preaches the gospel, and many people come to faith in Christ. This, y'all, is the greater miracle. All right, verse 35 is the greater miracle. It's people who are going from death to life. It's people whose lives are being changed through the preaching of Peter. Aeneas' life has been changed, yes, but God was up to something bigger. God was working. That God was trying to use Peter as a means of drawing people to Christ. 
Temporary physical healing was a glimpse of a new kingdom, but its greater purpose was bringing people into the kingdom through faith in Christ. And I wonder for how long during those eight years did Aeneas wonder, has God forgotten about me? Does anybody care what I'm going through? How much longer do I have to endure this? Little did he know that God was at work. And as he suffered, and as he went through the pain, as he went through the loneliness, as he went through the hardship, God was still at work, even though he didn't see it. And I look across this room, and there are many of you who are hurting. Many of you who are suffering. And you may be wondering, even to yourself, does God still care about me? Does he not see what I'm going through? How much longer do I have to endure this? May I say to you that God sees and God cares for you. Your king has compassion on you. Your king is praying for you. And your king is at work in ways that you cannot see yet. And so many of you in this room, I know you are hurting. And I want you to know that you are loved by your pastors. And you are loved by your church. And God has not forgotten you. You are his sheep and he is your shepherd. And he is so tender with you. His eye is always upon you. And though you go through hardship, you are not forgotten by your king. Your shepherd knows the season of darkness and despair, depression and hardship. He knows the stress and the pain you're experiencing in your life, and he will never forget you. And simultaneously, God is able to accomplish verse 35 through you. That indeed, God can use your pain as means of reaching many people for Jesus. In fact, I want to invite you, maybe even now in this moment, would you in your heart, would you pray? God, would you use my pain so that people will come to know Jesus? God, will you use my hardship? I don't know how you're going to do it. And as much as I want to be physically healed, whatever it takes, God, would you bring people to faith in Christ through my suffering? God, would you glorify your son in my pain? And you watch God move. He is able to answer a prayer that glorifies his son in a way that maximizes his, his name. Oh, the people that can come into the kingdom through your hardship. God is able. But can I also remind you this morning, if you are in, in Christ, your suffering is not permanent. It has a timestamp. There's coming a day in which you will suffer no more. There's a day coming soon in which pain will be forgotten. In the new kingdom, in the new world that Jesus promised is coming for those who hope in him, you will suffer no more. You will find freedom and hope and you will have no more suffering in this world. But in this season, as you go through hardship, you are loved by your king. He cares for you so tenderly and he walks with you. 
And even though you go through this pain, he says, I'm going to be with you every step of the way. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. He is your compassionate shepherd. And yet what's interesting here, the purpose behind Simon Peter healing this man, it's not to line his pockets. It's not to get wealthy. As there are people who will lie to you on television and on your radio and on podcasts where if you give money, you can experience healing and somehow they also get wealthy at the same time. Stay away. Do not go near those who promise to heal you for the sake of personal profit. That's not Simon Peter's objective here, but rather it's verse 35, to glorify God through people coming to faith in Christ. But let also, let's not forget this here. Physical healing is temporary. Don't miss that. Spiritual healing through the gospel is eternal. You see, physical healings were signs. They were pointing to a greater spiritual healing that takes place in the gospel. This is what God is after. You see, spiritual healing is where your sins are washed away. You're no longer dead, but now you're alive. Your heart has been transformed by the gospel. That's what God is after. And while God is glorified by displaying his power through physical healing of a paralytic, he's most glorified by displaying his power by turning sinners away from their sin and trusting in his son. What people need more than physical healing is a spiritual transformation of the heart. Now, Kenneth, can God still heal today? Absolutely he can. Can God still perform the miraculous? Absolutely he can. Our church is full of people who can testify to how God has confounded the doctors. He has displayed his power through physical healing. But we all must understand this, that physical healing is temporary. There is an even greater healing that must take place in the gospel. You see, there is a disease that all of us have been infected with. It's called sin. Sin has infected every human being all over the globe. And because of our sin, our rebellion against God, we are accountable and responsible to the perfect just judge. We must give an account before the eyes of him to who sees all things, including our hearts, our minds, and our lives. But the good news of the gospel is that God has made a way for you to be healed of your sin disease. He's made a way through his son. In ex, in, uh, easy there, Bruce. Numbers 21. We see where the people of God, Israel, they've disobeyed the Lord. And so God brings judgment. He sends these fiery serpents who begin to bite the people of Israel, and then when they are bitten, they die. Panic ensues across the nation. The people run to the mediator, Moses. Moses, save us from this. Moses goes to the Lord. The Lord tells him, make a bronze serpent, put it on a pole, and lift it up. And anyone who is bitten by a serpent looks to the bronze serpent is saved and they will live. So Moses makes the bronze serpent, puts it on a pole, lifts it up, so that when someone is bitten by one of these snakes, they look to the bronze pole, they look to the bronze serpent, and they live. 
Jesus is pointing to something bigger. In John chapter 3, verse 14, Jesus said, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus is the greater bronze serpent that was lifted up onto a cross. So anyone who looks by faith to Jesus, you're no longer under the curse of the serpent's bites. You're no longer under the curse of death. You are now set free from all disease that leads to death, which is sin. You are set free in Jesus. By his wounds, you are healed. Look to Jesus. He will heal you of your greatest disease of sin. And through his death on the cross, as one who is lifted up, those who look by faith to him, you're saved. You find life. You find forgiveness. You find freedom. You're given a fresh start. Jesus has power over disease. The second thing I want you to see in the text is that Jesus has power over death. He has power over death. We meet this woman, Tabitha, which is translated Dorcas, a woman who is in Joppa who got sick and died. The disciples in Joppa are broken over her death. They grieve deeply over their sister. They wash her body, they prepare it for burial, but in the text, they don't bury it. They don't bury her body. She's placed in a room in hopes for a miracle. They hear that Peter is in Lydda, about 10 miles away, and they're holding out hope that Peter would come and raise her from the dead. They send these two guys. They urge him, hey, Peter, come with us. We need you to come. So he makes the 10-mile trip. And just like Elijah and just like Elisha, Peter is used by God to raise the dead. In fact, if you go back to Mark chapter 5, you can see where Jesus raises Jairus' daughter from the dead. And the stories are almost identical to here in Acts chapter 9. As for Dorcas, her death was devastating to the church especially the widows. Remember, widows in the first century, they were dependent upon family and friends in order to survive. They didn't have social security. They needed friends and family to support them and enable them to live. This is why in Acts 6, there was such an intense fight in the church over caring for the Hellenistic widows. Because if it wasn't for the church, these women would go hungry. But what we see here in the text is we see this woman, Dorcas, Tabitha, a woman who, verse 36, I love this obituary, she was always doing good works and acts of charity. Here is a woman who's making sure the widows in Joppa are cared for, that they're clothed, that they're provided for, they're protected. Her death was costly question is, when time comes for you to die, who's going to mourn? When this woman died, the church grieved deeply. 
As Peter walks in, these widows in the church are sobbing and they're showing him, look at what she made for us. She took care of us. This is a woman who God used to impact a lot of people for Jesus. And so I plant this before you this morning. Give your best to those who will weep the hardest at your funeral. When you take your last breath, your company might send flowers to the church and they'll replace you within a month. Give your best to those who will weep the hardest at your funeral. You give your best to your spouse, to your children, your grandchildren, your church, your community. You give your best to investing in your life to those who genuinely care about you, those who will come and grieve at your funeral. You give your best to living a life like Dorcas, a woman who was just serving and caring for the widows, making sure they were cared for. What a picture of Jesus. Jesus wasn't hanging out with the influencers. He wasn't hanging out with the affluent and the political movers and shakers. This is a guy who spent his time with the sinners, the outcasts, those who are forgotten in society. Jesus gave his life to spend that time with the poor and the forgotten and the needy. Those who could not help him in any way. May we be those who seek to care in such a way that we love people so well that when the time comes and we are promoted up into heaven, those who are still here, there's a sense in which there is a deep grief because of the impact we've had on their lives. And here's Peter bowing to pray, and he tells her two words, get up. Immediately her eyes are open. Her brain starts firing. Her heart starts beating. Blood starts pumping. She sits up, takes Peter by the hand. She stands up and she appears alive to the church in Joppa. And once again, the power of Jesus is on display that death itself cannot have the last word over believers. What's happening here is a picture of what Jesus did when he rose Jairus' daughter and when he rose Lazarus from the, from the grave. And we know that death does not have the last word over all believers because Jesus himself defeated death. That he was crucified on a tree and he was nailed to a cross. He was buried, but he didn't stay there. For on the third day, he got up out that grave and he defeated death itself. And all who turn from their sin and trust in Christ by faith, that's true for you as well. That death no longer has, has the last word over you. That as followers of Jesus, we no longer fear death because we know the one who defeated it. Our hope and joy is in a crucified, risen king who is ruling and reigning over all, and he is soon returning to rescue all who hope in his name. As you sit here today, do not be afraid of death if you are in Christ, beloved. We are not afraid of the future because we know who holds the future. We know the one who's holding fast to us, the one who says, never will I leave you and never will I forsake you. And I will be with you even to the end of the age. We are a people who have been purchased by the blood of Christ. We are kept by the power of Christ. And we have a Christ who is going to one day return and rescue us and bring us home. So now... 
Here's how we are to live. It's your impact point, and it's this. Yield your life to the power of the Holy Spirit who is in you. That the same Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is the same Holy Spirit living in you who will give life to your mortal body. That not even death itself can hold you down because there's coming a day when the eastern skies will split and there will come a very familiar Galilean voice that will cry out, get up. And the dead in Christ are going to get up. And we who are still alive will be caught up to meet him in the air. There's coming a day in which Jesus will call out, get up, and the church will get up. This is your future. This is our hope. This is a promise from the king who always keeps his promises. And it begins by you hearing his voice. And when she calls out to you through his word, get up. Grab your cross, deny yourself, and follow me. If you're not a follower of Jesus today, today get up. Turn from your sin and trust in Christ by faith. You follow him. He's the king who knows you and loves you. He knows all of your past, all of your brokenness, all of your sin, all of your shame. He's fully aware and still loves you like crazy. And he proves it through a cross. This morning, get up and follow Christ. If you are in Christ, you have work to do. It's time to get up and to serve, to be about the mission that God has called you to do, to be like a Dorcas who is getting out and serving for those who are the least of these. Be encouraged, church. You have a Savior who knows exactly where you are. He knows your name and your story, your day of birth and your day of death and everything in between. He ordains every detail of your life. And he's promised you, soon I'm returning. And he's going to say, get up. Our hope is in him. Thank you.